before the notion of transparency had become top of the line for most people and clean ingredient lines. We've always cooked that way in our restaurant and we made sure that the product line matched that. So when you look at the labels on all of our products, you realize that, oh, it's just the same ingredients that we would put in it if we were cooking it in our restaurant, which I think makes a lot of people very comfortable. Looking for talent in beer, beverages, or natural foods? The leaders of the industry grow their teams with the BevNet, BrewBound, and Project Nosh job boards. Post your job listing to the BevNet job board today. Go to BevNet.com slash jobs to get started. Hey, Mike, one last quick note before the episode gets underway. What is it, Landis? We got swag! <laughs> as soon as this hit the office, we thought, who should be the first to get their hands on this stuff? And the obvious answer is our amazing podcast audience have been raving about the content, sharing with friends and colleagues, you know, helping us grow this thing from a grassroots level. Thank you so much. Yeah, so we don't want this swag sitting in boxes around our office. We want to get it out the door. So you're asking yourself, how do you get your hands on this stuff? Mike, tell them how. Yeah, to start, we're going to be selecting a few folks a week who sign up for the new Taste Radio newsletter. Yeah, so just head on over to tasteradio.com slash subscribe. There's a short form there. Fill it out, cross your fingers, and uh, look for a box. And you know, we're, we're going to have more fun ways to win swag in the future, too. This is just the beginning. Right now, we're just really excited to get this stuff out the door into your hands. Thank you, guys. And now, Taste Radio. Welcome to BevNet's Taste Radio. I'm Mike Schneider, filling in for Ray on vacay Latif. I'm with John Landis and Carol Ortenberg, and we're recording from our studio in Watertown, Mass. In this week's episode, we feature interviews with two seasoned veterans of the food industry, each of whom are influential voices on food trends, branding, and culture. First, we speak with Rick Bayless, the renowned chef, restaurateur, TV personality, and creator of Frontera Foods. We then sit down with Susie Fogelson, a former Senior Vice President of Marketing and Brand Strategy for the Food Network and Cooking Channel, and the founder of brand consulting group Fogelson & Company. We also include an interview with Jamie Melzer, the founder and CEO of Watermelon Road, who is victorious in Nosh Live's Pitch Slam 4, presented by 301 Inc. Just a reminder to our listeners, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send an email to ask at tasteradio.com. That was actually your best one yet. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much, guys. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> as, as a person who drew the shortest straw and had to be host, I really... <laughs> Carol Landis, great to see you both. Hey, now. Yeah, good to be here. <laughs> can I sign on like that every day now? You can, of course. <laughs> Landis, however you want. I mean, Ray's not here. Raven's on vacation as well. True. Landis, uh, I noticed your hair is looking awfully Fabio-like these days. Are you using Gisu or what's going on over there? <laughs> I just, uh, Julie got me watching Queer Eye on Netflix and Jonathan was, uh, he, he said something about, you know, look at this t-shirt. If I wash this t-shirt every day, it would be so faded if you do that to your hair. So I stopped it went washing right into my hair soul. every day. And, yeah. <laughs> so really I, you just have dirty, gorgeous looking hair today. Yeah, okay, exactly. I got it. Landis' hair is looking amazing. So what have you, what have you two been up to this week? I spent yesterday morning in the time-honored tradition of refreshing the Expo West housing page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those hotels went already. fast, huh? It's like you're entering your, your information. I, like, type the wrong password. Boom, hotel is gone. It's a stressful, heart-pounding adventure, you know, booking Expo West hotels, watching a movie with The Rock. It's kind of the same emotional <laughs> roller coaster you that should try, I... You should try buying fish tickets when they go first on sale. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you staying in Huntington Beach now? What do you, what, what do, you do if, you, if you miss the housing block? I mean, you know, here's the thing. 
these rooms are, you know, just reservations and a lot of people book way more than they need. And sometimes people book them just to keep them as bargaining chips and things like that. So I wouldn't stress it out too much. My recommendation, bookmark the site, go back there, check it a couple times a week. You know, when those rooms free up, there's not going to be a mass rush to try to get them. You just got to be lucky and get good timing. Good advice from a seasoned pro, Landis. (laughs) Everyone, take a deep breath. Listen to Landis. Don't worry. You won't have to sleep in a bus stop. It'll all be good. Everything's right, so just hold tight. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of stressful, this week on Project Nosh, Carol, you wrote about another meal kit company going down the tubes. What's going on with the meal kit industry? Well, meal kit company Chef announced that they are suspending operations. Uh, It sounds like it was due to some fundraising that didn't come through. It's a hard industry to be in, right? There's a lot of churn. Customers are getting sent offers every day for, you know, $20 off your first box. So they're bouncing around price shopping. And it's just tough. Yeah, super crowded industry. We've we've seen a lot of really high churn numbers, even with the leaders, HelloFresh and Blue Apron. Landis, you use both of those. Yeah, we've been doing both of them. I would be hard pressed to do it every week for a year. There's a lot of waste that comes in those boxes. And for me, it's the convenience factor that's really what pushes it. When we go away, like for example, this weekend, we're going to go camping in Maine and we're going to be gone Friday, come back Sunday night. We don't have time to go grocery shopping. So we got a HelloFresh box coming this weekend. That gives us three days of meals. You know, we can figure out the rest of the week from there. Carol, in your coverage, you mentioned that they last raised $35 million. And do you think they burned through that in a year? Is that why they're... It's an expensive business to be in. They had over 400 employees, you know, multiple fulfillment centers, all the packaging, the labor of packing everything into individual containers. And the thought with Chef was that they had you know, over a thousand recipes on their website. You go to Blue Apron or HelloFresh, they have 15. So that's a lot of moving pieces and ingredients that you have to have on hand every single week. It's a really complex machine that they were trying to build. And I think that a lot of the people that were there, you know, who are now going to be looking for jobs probably were incredibly talented because when it was working, it worked well. And, and, you know, they had major, major challenges to solve. And the thing I love most about this community is I've seen so many LinkedIn posts of people saying, you know, chef employees, if you're looking for a job, reach out to me. I'm hiring. I know people who are hiring. And it's, it's been wonderful to see the support behind that team that was working to solve those issues. Yeah, it's a tough industry to be in right now. Blue Apron stock, uh, 52-week high around $8, 52-week low almost uh, or $1.72 and now sitting at about three fifty. dollars So yeah, tough one. Chef was trying to be everything to everyone, and it seems like some of the niche players have figured out that the model cannot be that, similar to many of the food and beverage companies that we talk to who want to go out and, you know, be everything to everyone. Right. And some of the meal kits are still seeing success, the ones that have maybe figured out the niche and the supply chain a little bit better, fewer ingredients like the purple carrots of the world that are all plant-based. And speaking of plant-based, WeWork is giving employees incentives to not eat meat? I don't know about incentives, but reportedly WeWork has decided that they will no longer be serving poultry, red meat, or pork at any WeWork events. And additionally, employees will not be able to expense meals that contain those ingredients. The hope is that by 
having employees adhere to a plant-based lifestyle, they will be making a positive effect on the environment and making more sustainable choices. I just wish it was presented in a way that did provide incentives instead of penalize people for living a lifestyle that you know, they didn't know there was anything wrong with. It, it seems like, you know, it's very altruistic and there's clearly um, moral goals that people are trying to reach and uh, utilizing the workforce that they have is going to be greater than any individual effort. And I totally understand all of that. I just, uh, it seems presented in just a twisted way. And WeWork is a company that has the ability to affect multiple cultures because their business is to provide space for other companies to work. And so banning meat from your facilities or softly banning meat from your facilities, call it what it is, it has the ability to not only affect the WeWork culture, but other cultures as well. Now, to be fair, I think if you bring a meal in from home, they're not... They're not going to put it through the meat detector? Yeah, okay. there's no meat detectors. <laughs> I think you can still bring meat in and, you know, companies that are based there are allowed to have a pepperoni pizza dogs that they, delivered. that they unleash on the kitchen. <laughs> they would really not do well here because we get sent a lot of jerky at this office. Yeah. So, like, let's keep the meat sniffing the dogs way, keep away. keep the jerky coming. <laughs> <laughs> Hear me, Kalahari? Hear me, Ayomio? <laughs> I think, Landis, it's a great point, though, and it this goes beyond just WeWork, right? There are so many brands in the food space that tell consumers, like, you're eating wrong. You shouldn't be eating gluten or sugar or this or that. And I don't know. I worry it leaves consumers feeling bad about themselves, that they're, you know, not doing the right thing and there's all this pressure. The brands that seem to really be seeing a lot of success are saying to consumers, hey, this is hard. We know you want to make good choices. We know you want to eat healthier. You want to eat more sustainably. Let us help you do that. And maybe that's a direction we work could go is say, it's really easy to make a chicken breast for dinner, but here are some incentives to instead take the extra steps and, and try out tofu tonight. And you're a WeWork employee and you try to go out for a dinner at, say, Del Frisco's and you put it on your expense report and then you get that little warning, that little <laughs> nasty warning sign that you violated the expense policy. Maybe there'll be a new Expensify uh, setting for that. It'll be just be like a steak with a red line through it. <laughs> Expensify, if you're listening, we are expanding your revenue possibilities. I agree. I think brands should be using the carrot over the stick. I don't think that painting competitive disadvantages to your competition out there really helps anybody. Uh, you need to be able to stand in your own. And uh, a lot of that comes through positivity. So, And that was a topic that came up with two of the guests on the podcast today, both Susie Fogelson and Rick Bayless. How do we create a discussion around food? How do we bring people together with food, use food as a storytelling mechanism and community building mechanism? Rick Bayless, Bay. Interesting topics. Thanks, Landis and Carol. Let's get into our first interview with Rick Bayless, an acclaimed chef, restaurateur, and TV personality. Rick Bayless is a certified food legend. Known for his expertise in Mexican cooking and cuisine, Rick cut his teeth in the food business as the host of the PBS series Cooking Mexican. He opened his first restaurant, Chicago's Frontera Grill, in 1987 and subsequently opened several other Mexican-inspired restaurants, building a reputation for innovative and authentic dishes. In 1995, he extended the brand to packaged food, launching Frontera Foods, which markets a range of gourmet Mexican products, including salsas, sauces, and meals. 
Carol and Rick sat down at the 2018 Summer Fancy Food Show where he discussed the origins of his food career, his approach to launching a packaged food brand, and how he navigated the CPG space and the eventual sale of Frontera Foods. He also gives us his take on authenticity, innovation, and the future of food. Let's listen. Hi, everyone. Carol Ortenberg here. I am at the Summer Fancy Food Show, and I am so thrilled to be joined by Chef Rick Bayless today. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. You got me out of the booth a few <laughs> minutes here and come into this cold press room. <laughs> off of the stoves. You were <laughs> off, of the, <laughs> off of the stoves and into the cold press room. <laughs> so... You know, I read an interview that you hate this question, but I have to ask this question. <laughs> so how did you get involved oh, in this crazy world this of food? One. I grew up in this world of food. I grew up in Oklahoma City. And uh, I grew up in a barbecue restaurant, but all of my family, when I was growing up, was involved in the food business in one way or another. So I kind of came to it rightly. I tried to get away from it for a while because I knew that inheriting my parents' restaurant wasn't going to be the right thing for me. And that took me to Mexico. I was really into cultural studies. My undergraduate degree is in Spanish language literature and Latin American studies. And then I did graduate work in anthropology and linguistics. And Woo, so, fellow linguistic anthropologist oh, here. So gosh. kindred spirits. Yes, I never absolutely. meet one of these in a church. <laughs> <laughs> We're like dinosaurs or something. But uh, I was really interested in language and culture and how does a culture express itself through the language. And uh, as I was working on a PhD dissertation, I I just thought to myself, you know what my real passion is? How does the culture express itself in food? And because my background had taken me to Mexico and I was just in love with Mexico, I ended up living in Mexico for five years, writing my first book, which is really on the regional foods of Mexico and how they reflect the local culture and the local agriculture and uh, ethnic groups and so forth. And after that, you know, you also opened several restaurants. How did Frontera Foods, the food company, come about? That was a, uh, it wasn't my idea. It was one of our regular customers who was studying for his MBA, and he said, can I do a project on developing a food product? Because he, he, at the time, was working for Kraft Foods. And he said, can I do a project on developing a food product from Frontera. I'll need to interview you and, and so forth. And so he did that. And then after he finished his MBA, he started hanging around even more <laughs> and saying, I think that idea is something that we should really follow. So we met for about a year, just talking about what it would be like and who we are and what, what I could bring to it, what he could bring to it. And because once you start a company, I think a lot of people don't realize it's uh, a little bit like a marriage. And so <laughs> you really want to get to know the person beforehand. We saw eye to eye. This was about 22 or three years ago that we started Frontera Foods. And he still had his job at Kraft. Obviously, I have never given up my restaurant jobs. <laughs> and we grew it from just this tiny little fledgling company into something that was really, really big. And we were very happy because I guess the impetus to do it for me was that I knew that within the restaurant world, we could only get so many people in our restaurant. And we have the four walls of the restaurant that inhibit our growth. If we're busy all the time, that's it. 
But with going into grocery, we had the opportunity to share the Frontera flavors with a much broader audience. And we started off only in natural and whole foods. Well, we kind of started off in specialty, I would say, because our very first customer was Crate and Barrel Stores. Oh, my gosh. And then a really specialty food shop up in the northern suburbs of Chicago. And that didn't really last all that long as those people as our main customers because pretty quickly we were picked up by the whole food central region and that put us on the map. And then we grew from there. And, you know, we had, like any company, a lot of stops and starts. But my partner, Manny Valdez, was really the visionary behind how to grow that. I don't come from the grocery world. I don't know anything about it. I still say after 22 years, I think it is a remarkable business that is mind-boggling to me. I don't (laughs) understand how it all works and how you sell your products into things. I'm completely on the R&D side and the quality control side. So that's my passion. And I was very lucky to find a partner that was just as passionate about growing the business from that grocery store side and really came from it and understood it. He was a brand manager at Kraft Foods. When you started Frontera Foods, what most surprised you about starting a food company versus having a restaurant? When people buy food at a grocery store, they think of it as very different than the food they get in a restaurant. And a lot of our regular customers were surprised when they went to their local Whole Foods and found a Frontera product in the store. They weren't so excited at the beginning. They thought it sort of spilled the beginning of the end, that we were going to become super commercial and that we were going to change the food in our restaurant. And I guess they thought we were going to be opening jars in the back kitchen and putting that stuff on the plate. But that never was our intent. It was the opposite. It was like, you like the food in our restaurant, right? So we're going to give you the opportunity to have that food in your own home, in a grocery store setting to buy it, and then in your own home so that your Frontera experience can be much broader than just coming into the restaurant. So I learned right away that when people bought stuff in the grocery store, they weren't necessarily thinking of it in the same way as the handcrafted food that we have in our restaurant, in spite of the fact that we make all of our ingredients, I mean, we make all of our salsas and sauces exactly the same way that we do our cooking in the restaurant. I mean, for me personally, even before I came to this world, Frontera was always my secret weapon in the pantry to make a great dinner, easy, quick, and flavors. And I tried. I was like, okay. Can can we just, like, (laughs) quote that from now on? You articulated perfectly what we're going for. Now, continue on. (laughs) So one time I said, okay, I'm going to try making this from scratch. And I spent like hours finding chilies and tracking down spices and I made everything. And my husband said, you know, it's really good, but I think the Frontera one tastes about <laughs> the same quality. And I was like, you know what? Forget it. We're, we're just going to stick with uh, the professionals. Well, long before the notion of transparency had become top of the line for most people and clean ingredient lines, We've always cooked that way in our restaurant, and we made sure that the product line matched that. So when you look at the labels on all of our products, you realize that, oh, it's just the same ingredients that we would put in it if we were cooking it in our restaurant, which I think makes a lot of people very comfortable 
It certainly makes me comfortable because that's the way that I like to eat. And yes, when you go through all the steps, <laughs> roasting the chilies and peeling them and roasting the tomatillos and blending everything and yeah, it takes a while to do that. And we have some efficiencies of scale so we can give you that product at a reasonable price and saves all your time. Now, I do think it is hard sometimes for ethnic cuisines that are coming into the grocery store to figure out that balance between creating something that's authentic and also appealing to a mass audience because you know, you're on thousands and thousands of shelves and all different types of retailers. And there's a wider range of people than possibly who come through the restaurants Correct. on a daily basis. So how do you figure out that balance exactly? Well, I, I come up with a product that is a traditional product that I think is gonna resonate with the broadest audience. So instead of taking a classic preparation, say from Mexico and modifying that, to appeal to what I think is going to be a wider audience, I look for the product that already exists. And that means doing a whole lot of research. So that's going to Mexico, tasting things. And I'm always in the back of my mind, every time tasting a dish in Mexico, thinking, how would this resonate with an American audience? Because I want the real deal. I don't want to modify a recipe just to make it more mass. And this show in particular is interesting because you do see cuisine from all around the world that wants to get on shelves for the American consumer. Right. And it's unique to see how each one of them approach that a little differently. Right. And a lot of them approach it just by going, this is the authentic thing and you should love it because it's the authentic thing. I've never been that way. You will relate to this, but I, having come up through language studies, translation is a really big deal to me. And you can read the most beautiful Pablo Neruda poem in Spanish, but if the audience that you're saying it to doesn't understand Spanish, they may understand only just a sing-songy quality to it, but they don't get the real meaning of it. So because I came up through language studies, I was able to approach my traditional Mexican cuisine love in that same way, saying, okay, how would this translate into another language, if you will, the language of the American kitchen? And I guess because I came up with that understanding of translation so strong in my mind, it's probably set us up for really good success. And right now, it seems like that translation is especially important in our country. You know, we're having all these discussions of broad topics and there are people who come from different points of view. And what's exciting to me is the possibility that food can help bring people together to find common points that they can find a love over, or sit down for dinner. Well, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I believe that very much. I do a lot of public speaking and lots of times I ask the audience to imagine the United Nations being a very different kind of place. And instead of people sitting in a sort of theater-like format, that they are sitting at round tent tops. And it had a lazy Susan in the middle of every one of those. And every meeting was had over a meal. And all the food was on that lazy Susan and everybody had to eat out of the same pots. When you think about those kinds of things and you could imagine a very different world because we all have to have food to live, okay? And every culture identifies 
with the flavors that they put on the table. And once you have consumed the food of another country or another culture, you suddenly look at the people from that culture in a different way. First of all, one of the most intimate things that you can do is eat because you consume <laughs> the, the, the product. But at the same time, you're consuming some of their heart and soul and you start to see people in a, a more humane way. And I believe very strongly that since we are having these broad <laughs> discussions these days, what we need to do is to focus on how food can play a real strong role in that because I think it really can. I kind of laugh when I go to the grocery store now and there's still that ethnic aisle that's like what is with food that? around the world. I'm like, salsa. Salsa, <laughs> I think, is consumed right. as much as ketchup nowadays. <laughs> yes. It should just be with the condiments. Integration. <laughs> Integration. I'm with you. It should all be together. I think the segregation off is not a positive thing because, let's face it, in the United States... When you're thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner, a lot of people will say, oh, do you want Chinese or Japanese or Italian or whatever? We eat multiculturally exactly. in this country, and I think it's very important for us to represent that in the grocery stores. Just mix it all up. While I could talk more about international politics and how we could all come together <laughs> over the dinner table. But that would take hours and hours. <laughs> we'll take it back to food for a bit. Okay. Going back to your timeline, you recently sold Frontera to ConAgra. Right. And since then, you've been able to expand throughout the rest right. of the store. Right. Well, and we say we, we sold to ConAgra mostly because our business had grown to the point where we were going to have to do something. We didn't have internal capital to grow it to the next level. And yet people seemed to be really hungry for our product and we needed to grow it to the next level. So we investigated lots of different opportunities for us. And the one that seemed to be the right one was ConAgra, partly because the offices for ConAgra are about three blocks from Frontera Grill, <laughs> which was really, really helpful. And secondly, because it's a company that has a rich and long history in the United States. And yet, I think a lot of us thought of a lot of the ConAgra products as stuff that our mother and grandmother probably used, but they really hadn't kind of come into the 21st century. And so they were looking to become really relevant to the way that people are eating these days. And obviously acquiring Frontera was one of their first steps in doing that. And they were super excited about what we had built because for them it represented the future of great food in the United States in the, in the prepared style. And we decided that we were so excited about not only their enthusiasm, but their ability to turn out products was something that we just couldn't do. I mean, a really good example. Very, yeah, very quickly after you two developed this relationship, you rolled out new frozen products, I believe. Right. Well, so the honest to God truth is we had been working on frozen for 10 years and we could never bring it to market because... We didn't have the resources to do it. And within six months, we had finished products with ConAgra. And that was so exciting. And I'm not just saying this. They're amazing products. And I didn't even know you could get it that good in Frozen. But they had all of the wherewithal, the technology, the deep pockets to do all the testing and all that sort of stuff. 
which obviously is what we were lacking. And we were so frustrated about not going into Frozen until we started working with ConAgra. You know, yes, they did buy our, acquired our company, but they also acquired our enthusiasm for the company. And I still work for the company. And Jean Marie. You're manning the booth today. I'm manning the booth. Two days. And (laughs) uh, Jean Marie, who was my right hand in all of our R&D stuff, has joined ConAgra. And actually, she's now head of R&D for a lot of the stuff that they do. She's their culinary director. And uh, we're, we're really happy right now with the way things are going. And because we thought that they respected the integrity of our product and they have shown that they do, it's been a really positive relationship all the way through. And I think it's also the new Frozen products have allowed you to create a platform where you have a product for every type of cook. So you've got the instantaneous tortilla chips and salsa to frozen to sauces that you still simmer for a long time. That's right. And probably one of our absolutely most successful product was the little pouches that we call taco skillet sauces. And It's what I call dinner once a week. (laughs) (laughs) And we're very happy to hear that. Um, But, you know, you saute some onions and some protein, chicken or beef or pork or whatever, and open the pouch and put it on there. And you've got something that really tastes like real food because it's made like real food. But I think it's nice that you've embraced how consumers each cook differently. You can be the consumer who wants something right away and you can be the consumer who has more time. And you're kind of speaking to them all the same, though, that there is a place for them in your family. I think that there is. And I think you may be all of those consumers. There may be a moment when you want that microwavable bowl because you really have to eat and move on to something else. Or it might be Sunday afternoon and you're making dinner for friends. But you're not going to go through all of the rigmarole of the dried chilies, toasting and soaking and blending and straining and cooking and all that sort of stuff. So like our enchilada sauce is going to be the base of something that you serve to everybody, you know, and it's all going to be good. Well, you've worn a lot of hats, and recently you added another one, which is that of investor. You invested in a company called Macienda. Yes, and Macienda is very near and dear to my heart because it's a company that brings in heirloom corn that is raised by lots and lots of small whole farms in southern Mexico mostly, but in other parts as well. And bringing it into the United States where we can celebrate the beauty of this heirloom corn. Uh, Let's face it, in the States, we don't know too much about heirloom corn. And in Mexico, a lot of these smallhold farmers are really being pushed off to the, the sides. And It's so much easier and cheaper for people to buy mass-produced, mass-grown corn in Mexico that the market is drying up. So why not bring it into the U.S. where we have a little more disposable income to be able to celebrate it and enjoy it? And we, for a long time, have been buying all of the corn that we make into tortillas in Frontera from Macienda, and Macienda needed to grow. And yes, we invested in that company because I think it's really talking about what the futures needs to have. That's a really interesting point because I think sometimes people worry, oh, I'm bringing this product that's common to another culture and I'm selling it here as a premium product. Is it appropriation or is it, you know, making something for a select American audience? But this sounds like it's really almost saving this product and helping preserve it. Yeah, if you think about it in those terms, most 
of the time when people talk about appropriation and so forth, they don't really have some understanding of what they're talking about. When you're really talking about anything that has to do with cultural appropriation, it usually means that somebody has taken something from another culture, just ignored its roots, claimed it as their own, and they are trying to either make lots of money or lots of fame on that one thing. But they're not paying any attention to the culture that it came from. That's certainly not anything that I've done in my career. I've done nothing but celebrate the culture. And in Masienda's case, it's all about those farmers and what they're doing and how they have no market for their corn anymore because, I will just say it out loud, because the U.S. has flooded the Mexican market with cheap corn. And that has really put those people in a very perilous state, and especially this heirloom corn in a perilous state. So I say we're going to just do the opposite and we're to bring, we're going to create a market for them. And, you know, there's all this stuff that talk, where we talk about like haute couture and fancy restaurants and all that sort of thing. And there are people who like to bash it and say it's only for the elite. But if you look at the history of practically anything in that world, things start in that world and then they trickle down. And the next thing you know, it's everywhere. Arugula is a really, really good example. It started off only as this really specialty ingredient that was in the most expensive restaurants. Now you can find it anywhere and everywhere. And I'm happy about that because it adds something special to the flavor of our food. There is a fantastic book I love called The United States of Arugula. I was thinking of that. And it is just such a great story about how these products come to market and how they start off as these sort of specialty cultivated items and then go mainstream. Yep. And, and they I, I do. think I read it once a year. I'm like yeah. kind of, uh, I love that book. <laughs> I, do, I do too. And that's why I chose Arugula as my <laughs> example because it's in the title of that book. <laughs> well, I know we have to let you get back out onto the show floor, get back to the business of Frontera. But thank you so much for being oh, here with us today. I will say it has been a real pleasure. And it's really good always to be interviewed by somebody who shares your background in anthropology and linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for My that. My mom will be happy to hear yes. that. She's like, ooh, that degree pays off. It does. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Like Rick, our next guest, Susie Fogelson, certainly has her share of experience at the intersection of food and entertainment. For nearly 15 years, Susie spearheaded the marketing strategy for the Food Network and Cooking Channel, culminating in her role as the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Brand Strategy. In 2016, she founded Fogelson & Company, a consulting firm that works with food brands to develop a blueprint for storytelling and experiences. Susie joined Carol at the 2018 Summer Fancy Food Show, where she shared insights gleaned from her career at the Food Network, including the importance of purpose-driven marketing and why transparency is an opportunity for brands to tell a story. Hi, everyone. Carol Ortenberg here. I am at the Summer Fancy Food Show in the Javits Center. I'm joined with Susie Fogelson, who is the founder of F&Co. Thanks so much for taking time off the show floor to be with us. It's my pleasure. Hi. So for our listeners, can you start by just describing your history in the food industry? Because it's really interesting and you have a different background than a lot of the guests we have on this show. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, I've been in marketing and media for 24 years. 18 of those have been focused on food. So I have this sort of unique background where food and entertainment come together. And that was leading marketing and brand strategy for Food Network for 16 years. 
my main job was leading marketing. My side job was doing the show Food Network Star. So I was a judge for 11 years on Food Network Star. So unique experience. I left Food Network about two years ago and started F&Co, which is a boutique food strategy, marketing strategy, storytelling agency. And over your tenure at Food Network, how did you see the food industry kind of evolve? Because there were really some macro trends that you saw shift just even in the interest in how much people cared about their food over that time. Sure. I mean, that was really one of the most stunning things to see just how interested people got in food over those years. But I think a good way to say it is there used to be this term foodie that people would use. And foodie was kind of an exclusive, high-end, gourmet sort of perspective about food. Kind of an untouchable group that you knew a foodie, but you weren't one. Now, fast forward 20 years, Food Network is actually like 23 years old now. We really preferred to talk and think about people as food connected. So food is anything but exclusive, right? It's inclusive, it's broad, it's multicultural, it's young. And people are connected and curious and interested in food in a way that they have never been. So I think the most kind of striking change was this small little exclusive universe known as foodies becoming half the country and being food connected. You know, it's such a delicate balance, though, because now sometimes... As someone who's immersed in this, I almost feel like there are some consumers who are too connected to their food. Like, how do you strike that balance between being interested in food, but not overtaking your life or worrying about, you know, should I be eating this or should I be eating that? There's so many messages coming at you. True. And I think that Food Connected is a really broad spectrum. So we always would say from the cooks to the eaters, right? And everybody in between. And I think there are millions and millions of people that self-identify through food. Like, it's more important what they bring to a party than what they wear. (laughs) And they would give up Facebook and Christmas before they'd give up food media. It also seems like over the 25 years, you see a lot of things that were once exotic and the idea of like these spices or flavors getting embraced by the mainstream. Are there any things that like 25 years ago you would be shocked are now like in the aisles of a grocery store? Uh, Fiddlehead ferns come to mind Um, or ramps, you know, when they're in season. I remember doing a focus group very early on in my career at Food Network and we went to Raleigh right, North Carolina. And there was some episode, we showed him a clip of an episode where jicama was in the clip. And I vividly remember a woman saying, I can't get that at my Safeway. What is that, jicama? Like, (laughs) she never heard of jicama. And she loved Food Network, but she was frustrated that we would recommend foods that she couldn't find locally. So I'm sure that Safeway now has jicama and plantains and sort of everything else under the sun. But I think that's a good thing. I think getting people curious about ingredients that might be more globally inspired is a real plus. The Food Connected group of people are all about multisensory, all about, you know, wild flavors, bold flavors, new flavor profiles. We all know how curious people are about global flavors in the U.S., I think like three quarters of the top Grubhub ordered foods in the U.S. are all ethnic in some way. Um, And I'm not just talking about, you know, the Chinese and Italian menu items. So I feel like getting people curious about new foods, getting them to get in the kitchen and experiment with those foods, or at the very least go to restaurants and appreciate them. And I'm guessing that chefs like that too. 
this was something that's come up a lot on the show floor today and yesterday is that given the fact we're at a time when there's a lot of things we can't agree on in this country. It's such a nice way to come together over a meal or learn about a new culture through their food and the potential for that to be kind of a unifying force. I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's really interesting when you think about just how much tension there is within the Middle East and, you know, just what's happening with the world and immigration. But yet Middle Eastern flavors are probably the number one flavor profile that people are curious about now. Like it's been Korean for the past few years and now Filipino sneaking in there. And Middle Eastern flavors are, it's all about tasting those flavors, experimenting with those flavors. So I think it's a great contrast. What's happening politically than what you can do culturally and think about how culinary can bring people together and celebrate Middle Eastern culture and flavors in a way that's really positive. It kind of brings the something you might be unfamiliar with and makes it a little more familiar. And I think you see things like Food Network or Bon Appetit embracing this and bringing those flavors into like mainstream dishes where you might not have seen them before. So I want to fast forward now a little bit. What do you do, what does F and Co do? <laughs> what does F and Co do? Anything that anyone asks us to. No. Um, we are experts on food culture and this food connected consumer. So my partner and I, I'm the insights and he's the creative arm. So we both work strategy together and we help a variety of different brands. So everybody from restaurant groups to big food to startups and sort of everybody in between think about how to be relevant in food culture today. There's a lot of things coming at brands, especially big food, right? I mean, trying to figure out how to diversify the portfolio so that big food is relevant, but also holds on to its iconic brands, right? So it's the Oreos of the world, but also what's the new organic snack that actually satisfies what people are thinking about. It's not as simple as let's just grab a couple of those startups that were good. Right, I went to a beverage conference last week and Coke was there. And Coke was talking about their portfolio, which is very vast, right? So Coca-Cola, I mean, some unbelievable, a billion Cokes are sold like around the world in a day. I mean, it's a crazy number of Cokes. But they're not doing the standard Coke, they're doing the baby Cokes, right? So they're doing the littler Cokes. So have some Coke. We understand that you don't want to take in that much sugar. So we're going to make baby versions of it. They can't give up on Coke, but they're also diversifying their portfolio. So there is water, that there is bubbly, that there is lighter versions, that there is, you know, seltzer with juices in them, because that's what consumers are asking for. So we work with a variety of different brands who are tackling some of these issues in food culture and via trends, you know, via understanding I mean, we are pretty immersed in the space. So by understanding what's happening in food culture, we can hopefully help brands find winning strategies. We call it their food story. You're kind of almost like food anthropologists helping them uh, understand a new tribe. You know, it's an interesting point because that would be the why, right? That would be the why. So not just what's happening in food, but why it's happening, right? What is it that consumers are looking for? Like if you have a trend like Thai ice cream rolls, right? Thai ice cream rolls are really hot in New York, right? They're really fun to watch being made. They're really fun to eat. Not everybody should run and do Thai ice cream rolls, right? It's why are people so interested? It's the theater of the experience. So it's not only great flavor and delicious, sweet, cold ice cream, but the whole act of watching it come together. 
the sort of multi-sensory visual nature of that dish. So brands should be thinking about that. How do we create an experience that's memorable and compelling? Not everybody running and creating Thai ice cream rolls, right? <laughs> so the why is important. We're going to see a run on Thai ice cream rolls after this. <laughs> a run. <laughs> Google trends are like, what happened? Well, ice cream's a great category. <laughs> yes. I mean, that seems like a complicated thing, though, for big brands to do. It's hard to embrace these things that consumers are clamoring for and then still maintain that in an authentic way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, straddling that line so consumers don't say, oh, this is just you, like, pandering to us or this isn't real, you right. know? right. That seems very tricky for brands. I think it is hard. And I think that's why it's not just as simple as grabbing a couple of startups and putting them into your portfolio, especially the millennial consumer, right? The sort of purpose-driven marketing and what does your brand stand for and be transparent means that you can't really talk out of both sides of your mouth. What these big food guys have to do is actually evolve their brand so that it's not shocking or disingenuous to have healthy brands within their portfolio. And, you know, brings up a thought that I had the other day about transparency, right? So I'm probably hearing the word transparency every hour of my day. (laughs) And I think, talk about confusing, right? So where is the demand for transparency? So much so that I won't buy your product if you're not transparent with me, right? So what are your food morals, It's kind of what we think about when we think about Food Connected. And I think that there are some brands like hippies, right? Hippies, they're the chickpea puffs, and they check every box. Transparent, sustainable, organic, possibly even vegan. And they're a great snack with a great story that was literally created out of a desire to have a better-for-you snack that was also good for the environment, right? So they're coming out of the gate thinking about the triple bottom line. McDonald's and Wendy's are making these moves with regards to transparency. They're trying to play the card they've got. The card McDonald's has is we're going to do fresh, not frozen beef. Or Wendy's, right? They had big announcement about growing tomatoes in greenhouses. So kind of a local economy play. Now, that's transparent, right? Is that going to work? You know, what is the goal? Sell more burgers? I don't know if McDonald's consumer needs it to be fresh, not frozen. And that's my question. You know, we're, we're here surrounded by foodies. And, you know, they're asking about transparency. But what do you think the average American consumer wants and needs? Do they really want full transparency or do they just want a slightly better understanding of where their food comes from? I think it's a great question. And I'm not sure that I have the answer. But I will tell you that I think the idea that Wendy's is sourcing their tomatoes from greenhouses now will mean something to someone. I'm not sure how much scale they'll get with that. And I'm not sure that the person that goes and grabs lunch there anyway is actually going to care about that. But they're just not relevant now. They're not in the conversation at all with regards to this topic of transparency. So to me, it's almost, and I don't say this in a negative way, it's like almost a PR play, I think, just to get some buzz that we get it. What I will say about transparency is I think we're all thinking about food traceability, clean labeling, tracking where your food comes from. But transparency is actually an opportunity. So we see this as a burden. Oh my God, I have to really, you know, give a peek under the covers and I don't check all the boxes. So how can I push one forward and pull one back a bit so I can be transparent? But, you know, if I've learned anything by being at Food Network for almost 20 years, it's that transparency is actually an opportunity to storytell, right? And to your question, 
What do people want? Do they just want to know a little bit? Do they want to know a lot? People want to know the story behind the food. They just do. So I see transparency not as a burden, but actually as an opportunity to storytell. And transparency doesn't necessarily mean that it's vegan, organic, and non-GMO, right? It could mean the story of, well, the people who are growing the tomatoes. Like, the story for Wendy's could be about this move, not that it's checking these non-GMO, vegan, organic boxes, right? Makes sense? And I, I agree with you. I think storytelling is so important, and it ties back to this topic that I do think a wide consumer base wants, which is experience. They want an experience when they eat their food. So they don't just want to go into a Wendy's that's very, you know, sterile and have a burger. They want, you know, whether that's the atmosphere in the store or that's the story of where their tomato came from or engaging with the brand on Twitter. Wendy's does a great job on Twitter. They're great. Um, They want it to be more than just what's on their plate. Yeah, and fun. And if you give me a little bit of infotainment, I mean, that was the premise of Food Network since its inception. It wasn't about teaching everybody in the, in the country to cook. <laughs> it was about infotainment. And I'll tell you that one of our most popular shows, Gone Now, was called Unwrapped. And it was, you know, sort of the secrets behind America's favorite foods. I don't know how you would, like, turn on that show on a marathon and I'd look up and I'd be like, where did five hours go? But I know how to make (laughs) Oreos and Twizzlers now. (laughs) I know where the Jelly Belly was born. So that kind of just interesting factoids about food. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this is farm to table and let me tell you about the journey this chicken had before it got onto your plate. It could be that, but it can also be having some fun with food. Like, one of the things I think that... Oreos did. I think it was maybe last year, but around July 4th, they came out with Pop Rocks in their Oreos, right? That's checking one box, multi-sensory, right? Snacking, snacking and multi-sensory. They're not trying to be, you know, non-GMO, vegan, organic, right? They're Oreos and they know who they are. Pringles is doing the same thing. And Kellogg's is seeing great quarter off of all of its Pringles sales. And that's because people are now stacking them. Doing stackable Pringles. So the idea that you play your card, and if your card is, I'm a fun, iconic brand that is really delicious, maybe a bit of a guilty pleasure, let me play that card and be transparent in a way that is authentic for me. You know, I think what that card is can sometimes be hard for a brand to figure out, Mm -hmm. especially a young brand that's still figuring out their supply chain and their operations and their value proposition and who's managing the marketing when it might just be one founder. Can that evolve over time as you grow as a brand? I mean, Pringles has a huge team that can spend a lot of time investing in this, but how can small brands sort of figure that out? I think it's uh, the million-dollar question, literally. We work with a lot of startups at F&Co, and that work is incredibly gratifying because these are brands that are moving it forward, right? They're progressive brands like protein-based meatless meat, right? We love the idea that we could be helping a young brand get on the map. And I think at the end of the day, when you have limited resources, you have to have such a clear brand promise, right? A really clear brand promise that's unique and differentiated, And you need to take advantage of the tools and the resources that you have, which are largely social media. I don't know that there's a PR story for some of these brands yet, but it really is about awareness. And 
to do that cost effectively, you have to launch across social platforms that are relevant for your demo, for your audience, with a really clear brand promise and something unique and fun, spirited, tender, some way of talking about your brand in a way that resonates. That's an interesting point because I think of some of the brands that are here at the Fancy Food Show on the show floor where it's a very small team, Edible, which is an edible cookie dough, or Brooklyn Deli, which is an Indian-inspired condiment line, or Smart Sweets, a line of gummy bears. All of their founders, despite having small teams, have created this vast media presence, even just around themselves, talking about their views in the industry. And that's such an interesting way to tell your story. The story is almost the story of this founder a little Uh bit to start. Yeah, it's thought leadership. And I think it is being able to back it up. So this is how these founders feel about what's happening in the food space. And this is their answer to it. And I think that's a very powerful, you know, gone are the days where one person tells you everything you need to know, right? The Oprah effect, it's just not happening anymore. The consumer's fans are fans and friends, right? They're the self-selected group of authentic experts. It could be your butcher, could be your next door neighbor. And I think this is why influencers are so big on YouTube because real people with a real point of view and a message can break through. You know, I was was thinking the other day about this and I obviously, my beloved Food Network, I mean, is my first child, as I like to say. Food is my first child. The question really becomes, do you need a Food Network to become the next Bobby Flay? You know, can you between Netflix and YouTube and everything that all of the platforms that exist, do you need a food network in order to become the next Bobby Flay? And I think that is, it only helps, you know, obviously to be associated with that brand and it probably makes you famous faster. But the truth is there's an opportunity for almost anyone to become a star. There are quite a few folks on the show floor today that started off as cooking influencers on Instagram, on YouTube, and some of them now actually have shows, but that's where they initially cultivated that following. That's right. And that's that's critical, obviously, when it comes to the marketing of your products. And to wrap things up, you know, we're at the Fancy Food Show. We've talked about a lot of topics. I'd love to touch upon one brand that you saw here that really embraced these ideas of storytelling and transparency and everything we've kind of spoken about today. Sure. Well, there's a lot of brands doing a really great job here. Uh, One brand that stood out was 4505 Chicharron, right? So these are basically fried pig skins, but you walk up to the booth and it's sleek and black with some pops of color, so it immediately catches your eye. The people from the company, right, standing at the booth are all in these blue jean vests, right? So they kind of look like bikers a little bit. They're personable, obviously. They know a lot about the, the line. They go right into the, this is created by a chef, Michelin star chef, so he really knows his stuff. And it is the first and only chicharron that's organic, that's humanely raised. These pigs were treated right, he said. And then you taste it and it's delicious. So it's a really fun product that you don't see every day. It's kind of a naughty product, right? Fried pigskins that they've actually made healthier than the original version. And they have a talent, you know, that they're promoting, that they're putting forward. But they're all part of this team. And they're handing out tattoos, not surprisingly, and stickers. And (laughs) it's just, it was really memorable. The, The product was really good. It was kind of a disruptive product in a sea of a lot of, you know, chocolates and cookies. And they had a story, and they had a legit story from someone who knows food. And I thought they were really 
unforgettable. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And I look forward to seeing how F&Co continues to help brands tell their story. Thank you so much. In our final interview of the episode, we're joined by Jamie Melser, the founder and CEO of Watermelon Road, an upstart brand of fruit jerky, and the winner of Nosh Live's 2018 Pitch Slam presented by 301 Inc. Jamie sat down with Carol and I for a conversation about her big win and experience in the competition, finding her brand's voice, and what's next for Watermelon Road. Mike Schneider here with Carol Ortenberg and the winner of Nosh Live Pitch Slam 2018 sponsored by 301 Inc., Jamie Melzer, the founder and CEO of Watermelon Road. Thanks for being here. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Mike and Carol. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm so thrilled to have one. You had such a just stellar pitch, and you really blew away me. I, I think the judges as well with your packaging and just how thoughtful you are with your product line. Thank you. I mean, that means a lot to me. Um, The reason that I originally launched the product was really to get real clean whole ingredients into people's hands, but in a convenient, you know, manner for our our on-the-go lifestyles. Your pitch was very clean to the point. It wasn't rushed. You had numbers in your pitch, you know, the, the market opportunity within your pitch. I was really impressed by that. How often do you practice that? There was a lot of practice. <laughs> I've, been, I've been mostly practicing that for the last week. This was actually my first onstage presentation. We just launched the brand mm-hmm. last fall. So I really, you know, I did this for practice and to get feedback and to get in front of people. But yeah, this was my first kind of presentation in, in this kind of format. So, so I was, you, you I was just mentioned feedback and getting this brand out into the world. What surprised you the most since you've launched the brand? Oh, man. So my background is not in food. It's in finance, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I thought would come in handy, like launching a company. But realistically, like when you go into a new space like the food sector, you realize how many things you don't know. And it's, it's really a sector about, you know, logistics on one side and then like communicating a message on the other side. So I've been learning everything from scratch. You know, our brand is also dealing with fresh produce, which is, you know, a logistical challenge, but an exciting one that, that we like to tackle because it, it means it's real food. So for the listeners at home, it's probably good to tell them what Watermelon Road is. What is jumped right what in. What is the product? Mike got too excited. I'm so excited about I your mean, product you can, and you I mean, you can't, like, won. you look at the packaging, you taste it, it makes you really excited. But what is the product and, and you know, where is it sold now? Folks listening to this, they want to try the winner of the Nosh Live Fitch Lamp. How do. do they get it? These are all great questions. Um, okay, so Watermelon Road creates uniquely flavored dried fruit jerkies with no added sugar or preservatives and exciting and vibrant new flavors like watermelon lemonade, pineapple mojito, apple pie, and Mm. mango margarita. So we start by hand slicing fresh fruit. We marinate everything in citrus, which acts as a natural preservative and also provides a burst of flavor like no other dried fruits that you've tried on the market. We're currently sold primarily online. So at watermelonroad.com, I'm sure we can provide a discount to your listeners if if you're interested. Um, And at a handful of high-end retailers in and around New York City, like Eataly and Foragers. You're calling yourself a jerky. And are we going to find you next to jerky or are we going to find you next to dried fruit? So, you know, right now we're only in 35 or 40 stores Mm -hmm. and it's kind of hit or miss. Like we're a grab and go product. So a lot of it is, you know, front of store positioned with the snacks, Mm -hmm. you know, in bigger stores it's with the dried fruit. 
you know, certainly we we like to be a spin on the jerky category. It's all natural vegan. It's a sweeter jerky, but it still has that fun, chewy jerky-like texture that people love to snack on. So that's definitely something that we could test out in stores and, and see what the reception is in the jerky aisle. I think that was one of the things that struck me was it was one of the first fruit jerkies that actually tasted like a jerky and gave me the it feeling of a jerky. It definitely has a jerky feel. And that was, I mean, it's pretty cool to have John Sebastiani, who started Crave Jerky, tell you like, this is a competitor to jerky. <laughs> what, did right. you, what did you think of their feedback that like maybe you should consider merchandising it with jerky instead of dried fruit? Um, I thought that was great. And obviously coming from John Sebastiani, I'm going to take that to heart. <laughs> um, if, if he thinks that that's something that we should try out, then I absolutely will take that advice. <laughs> so what stage of growth is the company in right now? Where do you, where do you see it heading next? And, and what do you need to get there? Um, so very early stage. We just launched the website last October and started getting in some regional stores around the same time. So, you know, it's, it was really kind of getting proof of concept out there and, and reception. So far, we've, you know, exclusively grown through our social media account and word of mouth. We've been in some press, which has been great. But we have a tremendous amount of work to do, which starts with the scaling of our manufacturing. So we would love to get on Amazon and get into Whole Foods and get into, you know, a lot more stores to get in front of people. So many channels. There's so many channels. There's so many possibilities. You know, we want to do some cool collaborations. We want to try, you know, an Urban Outfitters or something like um, was recommended by the panel as well. So So you're putting a lot of different ideas out there. How do you know what to focus on? You know, we, we test things out and see what we get the best response from. Like our customers, because we're primarily direct-to-consumer business and because we have this amazing connection with our customers on social media, like we can figure out pretty quickly, you know, what we're doing, we think is going to work for our brand or not and work for our customers or not. So, you know, we're not going to do everything at once or try and get to, you know, 30,000 stores across the U.S. because frankly, that's not where our consumers are going to find us or discover us. They're very online and more and more as they become moms, they're going to be purchasing even their groceries online. So mm-hmm. I think we'll try and focus toward those narrower Was your hypothesis channels? about your customers correct? Because you just said you have this direct relationship with your customers. So when you make the product at first, you must be thinking, okay, I think this is going to be for a certain demographic. Unless you're like a lot of entrepreneurs, you're like out there going, hey, it's for everyone, which you'll, you'll know quickly that it isn't. No. So what, what have you learned? So I created the product to solve my own problem. That's what entrepreneurs do, right? Um, And my family has autoimmune issues and we were constantly on the go. We traveled a lot and, and found it difficult to find clean, healthy, you know, snacks. So I just assumed building this company that it would be for people like me, which, you know, is early 30s mom, families, et cetera, it's actually skewed a little bit younger than I was expecting. And I think that's because of the beautiful branding and because it's primarily been driven by social media so far. But I actually think that's great because those, you know, 20 somethings are going to turn into those moms and families and will stick with us as they grow and make purchasing decisions for their entire household. So I'm excited about all of our customers, but it's not too far off. It's, it's really health focused millennial women that are buying this product. And, and me. You mentioned <laughs> Mike. I'm pretty sure, Mike, you're basically an honorary health-conscious millennial woman. <laughs> Thank we'll, you, Carol. We'll, I'll take that as a compliment. We'll let you into the club. 
Um, so you talked a lot about your customers and who you're appealing to. What's your brand voice that you're kind of trying to channel? Because that, that can be a struggle when you're young to figure out, you know, not only who you're speaking to, but how you're speaking to them. It has been a struggle. It is a constant struggle. And it's something I have to continue coming back to my North Star and my gut and what, you know, drove me to start this company to begin with. And it's really about providing clean and simple ingredients and innovative new, you know, flavors or formats to bring people back into this category. So that's what we'll stick with. I like the simplicity of it and I like the I like the focus. I think for me, one of the challenges sometimes for brands that are entering sleepy categories like the dried fruit category is that it's hard to get a customer there looking for something new. They expect the traditional sort of assortment there. So as you're moving into retail, I know you're just in a few stores now, how are you saying to customers like, check this out, like come take a look at us. We're not your normal dried fruit. How are you driving trial? Yep, that is a totally fair statement. And I think if we were, you know, rolling out exclusively into retail in that dried fruit aisle, it would be a difficult challenge to get people to come back there, frankly. Like they've probably moved on or they just see it as a commodity product. And so I think that, you know, our strategy of of connecting through social media and the channels where our customers discover new products through influencers and bloggers and online through, you know, Amazon Prime up and coming or, or whatever it is will be really important. And also doing these cool collaborations with the companies that they're familiar with to build up credibility and brand awareness. And I think using our really cool branding will give us some of those opportunities. I do to think get that's going to help too, yeah, because your, your branding is beautiful. Your packaging is beautiful. And it is, it is different than many of the, you know, others in the space where you just kind of see that clear package and you can see what's inside. Mm-hmm. Or that are maybe aiming for like a kid consumer. Sure. There's there's a little bit of that as well. Yep. Um, so it seems like you're really pushing consumers to retail rather than trying to get them to pull you off the shelf. They're going there with a mission saying, I want to go buy this product and I know it's sold here. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I think we want to raise brand awareness so that people are aware of our product, either coming to the store or looking for it online. And, and I think there's a lot of channels to do that. And, you know, the other way to do it is put it where people are already going, fitness studios or urban outfitters or, or whatever it may be, so that you're not counting on them coming into a, a store and discovering you on a shelf somewhere. Well, Jamie, thank you so much. Congratulations on being the Pitch Slam winner. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Thank you. That brings us to the end of episode 121. Thanks to our guests, Rick Bayless, Susie Fogelson, and Jamie Meltzer. Tune in next week for episode 122, where we feature an interview with Rip Pruskin, the co-founder of innovative snack brand, Rip Van Waffles. Once again, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of John and Carol, I'm Mike, and we'll talk to you next time. 